Chapter 9. School was nerve-wracking. Every time Roy entered one of his classrooms, the other kids stopped what they were doing and stared. It was as if they were surprised to see he was still alive, with all limbs intact. After leaving algebra class, Roy heard a stupendous, phony farting noise behind him in the hallway. Garrett. He took Roy by the shirt sleeve and led him into the bathroom. You look sick. You should go home early, Garrett advised. I feel fine, Roy said, which wasn't true. He still had a headache from the thumping Dana had given him on the bus ride. Dude, listen to me, Garrett said. I don't care how you think you feel. You're sick, really sick, okay? You need to call your mom and go home. What have you heard? He'll be waiting for you after seventh period. So let him wait, Roy said. Garrett tugged Roy into one of the toilet stalls and locked it from the inside. This is so lame, said Roy. Garrett touched a finger to his lips. I know a guy in Dana's P.E. class, he whispered excitedly. He says Dana's going to snatch you before you get on the bus home. And do what? Duh. Right here at school, how? Roy asked. Bro, I wouldn't hang around to find out. Hey, you never told me you busted him in the chops, too. That wasn't me, sorry. Roy unlocked the toilet stall and gently nudged his friend out. So what are you going to do? Garrett called over the top of the door. Take a pee? No, I'm talking about you-know-who. I'll think of something. But what? Even if Roy managed to elude Dana Matherson all this afternoon, the drama would start all over again on Monday. Dana would resume the stalking, and Roy would have to dream up another escape plan. And that's how it would be every single day until school let out in June. Roy had other options, none particularly appealing. If he reported Dana to Miss Hennepin, She'd do nothing more than summon him to her office for a stern lecture, which Dana would laugh off. Who could take seriously a vice principal with one gnarly hair sprouting out of her lip? If Roy told his parents about the Dana situation, they might be alarmed enough to withdraw him from Trace Middle. Then he would end up getting bussed to some private school where he'd be forced to wear some dorky uniform every day, according to Garrett, learn Latin. Third alternative was for Roy to try to apologize to Dana again, this time oozing remorse and sincerity. Not only would that be groveling, it probably wouldn't achieve the desired effect. Dana would still hassle him without mercy. His final option was to stand and fight. Roy was a practical boy. He knew the odds were overwhelmingly against him. He had a quickness and brains on his side, but Dana was big enough to crush him like a grape. Roy remembered the time he and his father had a talk about fighting. It's important to stand up for what's right, Mr. Eberhardt had said, but sometimes there's a fine line between courage and stupidity. Roy suspected that fighting Dana Matherson fell into the second category. While he disliked the prospect of getting beaten to a pulp, what worried him even more was the effect it would have on his mother. He was very conscious of being an only child and he knew his mom would be devastated if something had happened to him. Roy had almost had a little sister, though he wasn't supposed to know about it. 
His mother carried the baby for five months, and then one night she got terribly sick, and an ambulance rushed her to the hospital. When she came home a few days later, the baby wasn't there anymore, and nobody really explained why. Roy was only four years old at the time, and his parents were so upset that he was afraid to ask questions. A few years later, an older cousin told him what a miscarriage was and confided that Roy's mother had lost a baby girl. Ever since then, he tried not to give his parents extra reasons to worry about him. Whether on horseback, bike, or snowboard, he refrained from doing some of the wild daredevil stunts that boys his age usually tried, not because he feared for his safety, but because he felt it was his solemn duty as an only child. Yet there he was this morning on the school bus, insulting the same pea-brained thug who already held a mortal grudge against him. Sometimes Roy didn't understand what came over him. Sometimes he was too proud for his own good. The last class of the day was American history. After the bell, Roy waited for the other students to file out ahead of him. Then, cautiously, he peeked into the hall. No sign of Dana Matherson. Roy, is something wrong? It was Mr. Ryan, the history teacher, standing behind him. No, everything's fine, Roy said breezily, stepping out of the classroom. Mr. Ryan closed the door behind them. You going home too? Roy asked. I wish. I've got to grade papers. Roy didn't know Mr. Ryan very well, but he walked with him all the way to the faculty lounge. Roy made small talk and tried to act casual while constantly checking behind him to see if Dana was lurking. Mr. Ryan had played football in college, and since then, he hadn't gotten any smaller, so Roy felt fairly safe. It was almost as good as walking with his dad. You taking the bus home? Mr. Ryan asked. Sure, Roy said. But isn't pickup on the other side of school? Uh, yeah, I'm just getting some exercise. When they reached the door of the faculty lounge, Mr. Ryan said, Don't forget the quiz on Monday. Right, War of 1812, said Roy. I'm ready. Yeah, who won the Battle of Lake Erie? Commodore Perry. Which one, Matthew or Oliver? Roy took a guess. Matthew? Mr. Ryan winked. Study a little more, he said, and have a good weekend. Then Roy was alone in the hall. <clears throat> it was amazing how rapidly schools emptied after the final bell, as if someone pulled the plug under a giant whirlpool. Roy listened closely for footsteps, sneaking footsteps. But he only heard the of the clock mounted above the door to the science lab. Roy observed that he had exactly four minutes to reach the bus pickup zone. He wasn't worried, though, because he already mapped a shortcut throughout through the gym. His plan was to be among the very last to board the bus. That way he could grab one of the empty seats up front and jump off quickly at his stop. Dana and his cronies customarily occupied the back rows and seldom bothered the kids sitting up near the driver. Not that Mr. Kesey would even notice, Roy thought. He jogged to the end of the hallway and turned right, heading for the double doors that marked the back entrance of the gymnasium. He almost made it, too. Let's be crystal clear about this, Mr. Brannett. You didn't report it to the police. No, sir, Curly said empathetically into the telephone. So there shouldn't be any paperwork, correct? No possible way for the latest travesty to end up in the press? Not that I can figure, Mr. Muckle. 
For Curly, it had been another long, discouraging day. The sun had finally broken through the clouds, but after that, it was all downhill. The construction site remained uncleared, the earth-moving equipment sitting idle. Curly had stalled as long as possible before phoning Mother Paula's corporate headquarters. Is this your idea of a sick joke? Chuck Muckle had snarled. It ain't no joke. Tell me again, Mr. Brannett. Every miserable detail. So Curly had repeated everything, beginning from when he'd arrived at the site early that morning. The first sign of trouble had been Kala waving a tattered red umbrella and chasing his four attack dogs along the inside perimeter of the fence. He was shrieking hysterically in German. Not wishing to be mauled by the dogs or gored by the umbrella, Curly had remained outside the gate watching in puzzlement. A Coconut Cove police cruiser had pulled up to investigate. Officer Delinko, the same cop who had dozed off while guarding the construction site. It was because of him that the spray painting fiasco had made the newspaper and gotten Curly into hot water with Mother Paula's company. I was on my way to the station when I saw the commotion, Officer Delinko said, <clears throat> said, raising his voice over the barking of the Rottweilers. What's wrong with those dogs? Nothing, Curly had told him. It's just a training exercise. The cop had brought, bought it and driven away, much to Curly's relief. Once the Rottweilers were secured on leashes, Kahlo had hustled them into the camper truck and locked the tailgate. Furiously, he turned toward Curly and jabbed an umbrella in midair. You! You try and kill my dogs! The foreman had raised his palms. What are you talking about? Kahlo had thrown open the gate and stomped up to Curly, who was wondering if he should pick up a rock for self-defense. Kahlo was drenched with sweat, the veins in his neck bulging. Snakes! He had spit out the word. What snakes? Yeah, you know what snakes. The place is crawling with them. Poisonous ones. Here Kahlo had wiggled one of his pinky fingers. Poison snakes with shiny tails. No offense, but you're as nutty as a fruitcake. Curly never once had seen a snake on the Mother Paula's site, and he would have remembered if he had. Snakes gave him the willies. Nuts, you say? Kahlo had seized him under one arm and led him to the portable trailer that served as Curly's office. There, coiled comfortably in the second step, was a thick mottled specimen that Curly recognized as a cottonmouth water moccasin, commonly found in southern Florida. Kala was right. It was seriously poisonous, and its tail was sparkly. Curly had found himself backing up. Uh, I think you're getting carried away, he said to Kahlo. Yeah, you zink! The dog trainer then had hauled him toward the fence to point out another moccasin. Then another, and still another, nine in all. Curly had been flabbergasted. What you think now? Zincalo is nutsy fruit bar? I can't explain it, Curly had admitted shakily. Maybe all this rain brought him out of the swamps. Yeah, sure. Listen, I... No, you listen. Each dog is worth 3,000 U.S. dollars. That is 12,000 bucks barking here in the truck. What happens? Dogs get bit by snake. Dog dies, yeah? I didn't know about no snakes, I swear. 
It's a miracle, the dog, they all okay. Pookie face, the snake came after him, this close. Carlo had indicated a distance of about a yard. I take umbrella and push him away. It was just about then that Carlo had accidentally stepped in an owl burrow and twisted his ankle. Rejecting Curly's offer of assistance, the dog trainer had hopped on one leg back to the camper truck. I go now. Don't ever call me again, he had fumed. Look, I said I was sorry. How much do I owe you? Two bills I send, one for the dogs and one for my leg. Oh, come on. Okay, maybe not. Maybe I talk to lawyer instead. Carlo's pale eyes had been gleaming. Maybe I cannot as train the dogs anymore. My legs hurt so much. Maybe I go on what you say, disability. For Pete's sake. Mother Paula is very big company. Has lots of money, yeah? After Carlo had roared away, Curly carefully made his way to the trailer. The cottonmouth was no longer sunning on the steps, but Curly didn't take any chances. He set up a stepladder and hoisted himself through a window. Fortunately, he saved the phone number of the reptile wrangler who had successfully, successfully removed the alligators from the toilets. The guy was tied up on an iguana call, but his secretary promised he'd come to the construction site as soon as possible. Curly had holed up in the trailer for almost three hours until the reptile wrangler pulled up to the gate. Armed with only a pillowcase and a modified five iron, the guy had methodically scoured the pancake house property in search of sparkle-tailed water moccasins. Incredibly, he found none. That ain't possible, Curly had exclaimed. They were all over the place this morning. The reptile wrangler had shrugged. Snakes can be unpredictable. Who knows where they went? That's not what I want to hear. You sure they were moccasins? I never saw one with a shiny tail. Thanks for all your help, Curly had snidely said and slammed the trailer door. Now it was he who was on the receiving end of the peevish sarcasm. Maybe you can train your snakes to guard the property, Chuck Muckle was saying, since the dogs didn't work out. It ain't so funny. You got that right, Mr. Bran. It ain't funny at all. Them cottonmouths can kill a person, Curly said. Really? Can they kill a bulldozer too? Well, probably not. Then what are you waiting for? Curly sighed. Yes, sir. First thing Monday morning. Music to my ears, Chuck Muckle said. The janitorial closet smelled pungently of bleach and cleaning solvents. Inside, it was almost as black as night. Dana Matherson had reached out and snagged Roy as he ran toward the gym, pulling him into the closet and slamming the door. Nimbly, Roy had squirted out of Dana's moist grasp, and now he huddled in the cluttered floor while Dana stumbled around, punching blindly. Scooting on the seat of his pants, Roy made his way toward a paper-thin stripe of light that he assumed was shining through a crack beneath the door. For somewhere... Above came a bang and then a pained yelp. Apparently, Dana had delivered a ferocious uppercut to an aluminum bucket. Somehow, Roy located the doorknob in the darkness. He flung open the door and lunged for freedom. Only his head made it into the hallway before Dana caught him. Roy's fingertips squeaked across the linoleum as, if he, was, as he was pulled backward. And again, the door closed on his shouts for help. As Dana yanked him off the floor, Roy desperately groped for something with which to defend himself. 
His right hand found what felt like a wooden broom handle. I got you now, cowgirl, Dana whispered hoarsely. He locked Roy in a fierce bear hug that emptied the air from Roy's lungs like an accordion. His arms were pinned to his sides and his legs dangled as limply as a rag doll's. Now aren't you sorry you messed with me, Dana gloated. As Roy grew dizzy, the broom handle dropped from his fingers and his ears filled with the sound of crashing waves. Dana's clench was smothering, but Roy found he could still move his lower legs. With all his unsapped strength, he started thrashing both feet. For a moment, nothing happened. Then Roy felt himself falling. He landed face up so that his backpack absorbed the impact. It was still too dark to see, but Roy surmised that Dana's whimpering gasps that he had been kicked in a very sensitive part of the body. Roy knew he had to move swiftly. He tried to roll over, but he was weak and breathless from Dana's brutish hug. He lay there helplessly, like a turtle that had flipped on its back. When he heard Dana, Dana bellow, Roy closed his eyes and girded himself for the worst. Dana fell heavily upon him, clamping his meaty paws around Roy's throat. This is it, Roy thought. This dumb goon is really going to kill me. Roy felt hot tears rolling down his cheeks. Sorry, Mom. Maybe you and Dad can try again. Suddenly, the door of the utility closet flew open, and the weight of Roy's chest seemed to vaporize. He opened his eyes just as Dana Matherson was being lifted away, arms flailing, a stunned expression on his pug face. Roy remained on the floor, catching his breath and trying to sort out what just had happened. Maybe Mr. Ryan had overheard the sounds of the struggle. He was plenty strong enough to hoist Dana like a bale of alfalfa. Eventually, Roy flopped over and got to his feet. He fumbled for the light switch and rearmed himself with the broom handle, just in case. When he poked his head out of the closet, he saw that the hallway was deserted. Roy dropped the broom handle and streaked for the nearest exit. He almost made it, too. Chapter 10 I miss my bus, Roy muttered. Big deal, I'm missing soccer practice, said Beatrice. What about Dana? He'll live. It wasn't Mr. Ryan who saved Roy from a whipping in the closet. It was Beatrice Leap. She had left Dana Matherson stripped down to his underpants and trussed to the flagpole in front of the administration building at Trace Middle School. There, Beatrice had borrowed a bicycle, forcefully installed Roy on the handlebars, and was now churning at a manic pace toward the unknown destination. Roy wondered if this was a kidnapping in the legal sense of the term. Surely there must be a law against one kid snatching another kid from school property. Where are we going? He expected Beatrice to ignore the question as she had twice before, but this time she answered, your house. What? Just be quiet, okay? I'm in no mood, cowgirl. Roy could tell by her tone of voice that she was upset. I need a favor, she told him, right away. Sure, anything you want. What else could he say? He was hanging on for dear life as Beatrice zigged across the busy intersections and zagged through lines of traffic. She was a skilled bicyclist, but Roy was nervous nonetheless. Bandages, tape, goop to stop infections, Beatrice was saying. Your mom got any of that stuff? 
Of course. Roy's mom kept enough medical supplies to run a mini emergency room. Good deal. Now all we need is a cover story. What's going on? Why can't you get bandages at your house? Because it's none of your business. Beatrice set her jaw and pedaled faster. Roy got a queasy feeling that something bad must have happened to Beatrice's stepbrother, the running boy. Mrs. Eberhardt greeted them at the front door. I was getting worried, honey. Was the bus late? Oh, who's this? Mom, this is Beatrice. She gave me a lift home. I'm very pleased to meet you, Beatrice. Roy's mother wasn't just being polite. She was plainly delighted that Roy had brought home a friend, even if it was a tough-looking girl. We're going to Beatrice's to finish up some homework. Is that okay? You're welcome to stay here and work. The house is quite... It's a science experiment, Beatrice cut in. It might get pretty messy. Roy suppressed a smile. Beatrice had sized up his mother perfectly. Mrs. Eberhardt kept an exceptionally neat house. Her brow furrowed at the thought of a glass beaker bubbling with potent chemicals. Is it safe? She asked. Oh, we always wear rubber gloves, Beatrice said reassuringly, and eye goggles too. It was obvious to Roy that Beatrice was an experienced at fibbing to grown-ups. Mrs. Eberhardt fell for the whole yarn. While she fixed them a snack, Roy slipped out of the kitchen and darted to his parents' bathroom. The first aid stash was in the cabinet beneath the sink. Roy removed a box of gauze, a roll of white adhesive tape, a tube of antibiotic ointment that looked like barbecue sauce. These items he concealed in his backpack. When he returned to the kitchen, Beatrice and his mother were chatting at the table, a plate of peanut butter cookies between them. Beatrice's cheeks were full, which Roy took as a promising sign. Enticed by the sweet, warm smell, he reached across and grabbed two cookies off the top of the pile. Let's go, Beatrice said, jumping from her chair. We've got lots of work to do. I'm ready, said Roy. Oh, wait, you know what we forgot? He had no clue what Beatrice was talking about. No, what did we forget? The ground beef, she said. Uh, you know, for the experiment. Yeah, said Roy, playing along. That's right. Immediately, his mother piped up. Honey, I've got two pounds in the fridge. How much do you need? Roy looked at Beatrice, who smiled innocently. Two pounds would be plenty, Mrs. Eberhardt. Thanks. Roy's mother bustled to the refrigerator and retrieved the package of meat. What kind of science experiment is this anyway? She asked. Before Roy could answer, Beatrice said, Cell decay. Mrs. Eberhardt's nose crinkled as if she could already smell something rotting. You two better run along, she said, while that hamburger's still fresh. As I continue reading chapter 10, I want you to focus on characterization, the personality traits that tells about each character. There are two types of ways to characterize, and that is direct characterization, when the writer makes direct statements about a character's personality and tells what the character is like. And the second one is indirect characterization, when the writer reveals information about a character and his or her personality through that character's thoughts, words, and actions, along with how other characters respond to that character, including what they think about or say about him or her. You're going to be introduced to Leon and Leona, Beatrice's dad and stepmom. 
Beatrice Leap lived with her father, a former professional basketball player with a gimpy knee, a beer gut, and not much enthusiasm for steady work. Leon Lurch Leap had been a high-scoring point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers and later for the Miami Heat. But 12 years after retiring from the NBA, he still hadn't decided what to do with the rest of his life. Beatrice's mother was not an impatient woman, but she had eventually divorced Leon to pursue her own career as a cockatoo trainer at Parrot Jungle, a tourist attraction in Miami. Beatrice had chosen to remain with her father, partly because she was allergic to parrots and partly because she doubted that Leon Leap could survive on his own. He had basically turned into a lump. Yet less than two years after Mrs. Leap left him, Leon surprised everyone by getting engaged to a woman he met at a celebrity pro-am golf tournament. Lana was one of the waitresses in a bathing suit who drove electric carts around the golf course, serving beer and other beverages to the players. Beatrice didn't even learn Lana's last name until the day of the wedding. It was the same day Beatrice found out she was going to have a stepbrother. Lana arrived at the church towering a somber, bony-shouldered boy with sun-bleached hair and a deep tan. He looked miserable in the coat and necktie, and he didn't hang around for the reception. No sooner had Leon placed the wedding ring on Lana's finger than the boy kicked off his shiny black shoes and ran away. This was to become a reoccurring scene in the Leap family chronicles. Lana didn't get along with her son and nagged at him constantly. To Beatrice, appeared it appeared as if Lana was afraid that the boy's quirky behavior might annoy her new husband, though Leon Leap seemed not to notice. Occasionally, he'd made a half-hearted attempt to bond with the kid, but the two had little in common. The boy held no interest in Leon's prime passions, sports, junk food, and cable television, and spent all his free time roaming the woods and swamps. As for Leon, he wasn't much of an outdoorsman, and was leery of any critter that wasn't wearing a collar and a rabies tag. One night, Lana's son brought home an orphan baby raccoon, which promptly crawled into one of Leon's favorite moleskin slippers and relieved itself. Leon seemed more puzzled than upset, but Lana went totally ballistic. Without consulting her husband, she arranged for her son to be shipped off to a military prep school, the first of several failed attempts to normalize the boy. He seldom lasted more than two weeks before running away or being expelled. The last time it happened, Lana purposely didn't tell Leon. Instead, she continued to pretend that her son was doing fine, that his grades were good, and his conduct was improving. The truth was, Lana didn't know where the boy had gone and didn't intend to go looking for him. She was fed up with the little monster, or so Beatrice overheard her say on the telephone. As far as, as, as for Leon Leap, he displayed no curiosity beyond what his wife had told him about her wayward offspring. Leo didn't even notice when tuition bills from the military school stopped coming. Long before his mother sent him away for the last time, the boy and his stepsister had forged a quiet alliance. After Lana's son made his way back to Coconut Cove, the first and only person he contacted was Beatrice. She agreed to keep his whereabouts a secret, knowing that Lana would call the juvenile authorities if she ever found out. That concern was a 
what prompted Beatrice Leap to confront Roy Eberhardt after she saw him chasing her stepbrother that first day. She did what any big sister would have done. On the bicycle ride, Beatrice shared enough bits and pieces of her family's story with Roy that he understood the difficult situation. And after seeing her stepbrother's wounds, he knew why Beatrice had to run for help after she found him moaning inside the old JoJo's ice cream truck. It was the first time Roy had been permitted to see the running boy up close and face to face. The kid was stretched out, a crumpled cardboard box serving as a pillow. His straw blonde hair was matted from perspiration and his forehead felt hot to the touch. In the boy's eyes was a restless, darting, animal flicker that Roy had never seen. Does it hurt bad? Roy asked. Nope. Liar, Beatrice said. The boy's left arm was purple and swollen. At first, Roy thought it was from a snake bite and worriedly glanced around. Fortunately, the bag of cotton mounts was nowhere in sight. I stopped by on the way to the bus stop this morning and found him like this, Beatrice explained to Roy, then to her stepbrother. Go on, tell cowgirl what happened. Dog got me. The boy turned his arm over and pointed to several angry red holes in the skin. The bites were nasty, but Roy had seen worse. One time his father had taken him to a state fair where a rodeo clown got chomped by a panicky horse. The clown was bleeding so badly that he was rushed to the hospital in a helicopter. Roy unzipped his backpack and removed the medical supplies. He knew a little about treating puncture wounds from a first aid course he had taken on a summer camp in Bozeman. Beatrice had already cleaned her stepbrother's arm with soda water, so Roy lathered antibiotic ointment on a panel of gauze and taped it firmly around the boy's arm. You need a tetanus shot, Roy said. Mullet Fingers shook his head. I'll be okay. Is that dog still running around here? The boy turned inquiringly to Beatrice, who said, go ahead and tell him. You sure? Yeah, he's all right. She shot an appraising glance at Roy. Besides, he owes me. He almost got squashed in the closet today. Isn't that right, cowgirl? Roy's cheeks flushed. Never mind that. What about this dog? Actually, there were four of them, Mullifinger said, behind a chain fence. So how'd you get bit? Arm got stuck. Doing what? It's no big deal, said the boy. Beatrice, did you get some hamburger? Yeah, Roy's mom gave it to us. The kid sat up. Then we better roll, Roy said. No, you need to rest. Later, come on, they're getting hungry. Roy looked at Beatrice Leap, who offered no explanation. They followed mullet fingers down the steps to the ice cream truck and out of the junkyard. Meet you there, he said, and broke into a full run. Roy couldn't imagine the strength it must have taken, considering his painful injury. As Mullet Fingers scampered off, Roy noticed with some satisfaction that he was wearing shoes, the same sneakers Roy had bought for him a few days early. Er. Beatrice mounted the bicycle and pointed at the handlebars. Hop aboard. No way, Roy said. Don't be a wuss. Hey, I don't want any part of this, not if he's going to hurt those dogs. What are you talking about? That's why he wanted the meat, right? Roy thought he figured it out. He thought the kid meant to take a revenge on the dogs by spiking the hamburger with something harmful, maybe even poisonous. Beatrice laughed and rolled her eyes. 
He's not that kind of crazy. Now let's go. Fifteen minutes later, later, Roy found himself on East Oriole Avenue at the same trailer where the foreman had hollered at him a few days before. It was nearly five o'clock and the construction site looked deserted. Roy noticed that a chain-link fence had been erected to enclose the lot. He recalled that the cranky foreman had threatened to unleash vicious guard dogs, and he assumed that they were the ones that bit mullet fingers. Jumping off the bike, Roy said to Beatrice, Does this have anything to do with that cop car that got spray-painted? Beatrice said nothing. Or the gators in the portable potties? Roy asked. He knew the answer, but Beatrice's expression said it all. Mind your own business. Despite the fever and the raging infection, her stepbrother had beaten them to the pancake house construction site. Let me have that, he said, snatching the package of meat from Roy's hands. Roy grabbed it back. Not until you tell me what it's for. The kid looked to Beatrice for assistance, but she shook her head. Get it over with, she told him. Come on, we haven't got all day. His injured arm, hanging limply, mullet fingers, clambered up one side of the fence and down the other. Beatrice followed effortlessly, swinging her long legs over the top. What are you waiting for? She barked at Roy, still standing on the other side. What about those dogs? The dogs, said mullet fingers, are long gone. More confused than ever, Roy scaled the fence. He followed Beatrice and her stepbrother to a parked bulldozer. They huddled in the shaded cup of the blade, safely out of sight from the road. Roy sat in the middle position, with Beatrice on his left side and mullet fingers on his right. Roy held the package of meat on his lap, covering it with both arms like a fullback protecting a football. Did you paint that cop car? He bluntly asked the boy. No comment. And hide all those alligators in the toilet? Mullet fingers stared straight ahead, his eyes narrowing. I don't get it, Roy said. Why would you try crazy stuff like that? Who cares if they build a stupid pancake house here? The boy's head snapped around and he froze Roy with a cold look. Beatrice spoke up. My stepbrother got bit by the dogs because his arm got stuck when he reached through the fence. Now ask me why he was reaching through the fence. Okay, why, Roy said. He was putting out snakes. The same snakes from the golf course? The cottonmouths? Roy exclaimed. But why? You trying to kill somebody? Mullifingers smiled knowingly. They couldn't hurt a flea, them snakes. I taped their mouths shut. I'm so sure, Roy said. Plus, I glued sparkles on the tails, the boy added, so they'd be easy to spot. Beatrice said, he's telling the truth, Eberhart. Indeed, Roy had seen the sparkling tails for himself. But come on, he said. How do you tape a snake's mouth closed? Real carefully, said Beatrice with a dry laugh. It ain't so hard, Mullifingers added, if you know what you're doing. See, I wasn't trying to hurt them dogs, just rile them up. Dogs do not like snakes, Beatrice explained. Make some freak out, bark and howl and run around in circles, her stepbrother said. I knew the trainer wouldn't drag him out here. I knew the trainer would drag him out of here as soon as he saw the cotton mouse. Those Rottweilers ain't cheap. It was the wildest plan Roy had ever heard. The only part I didn't count on, said Mullet Fingers, eyeing the bandaged arm, was getting bit. Roy said, I'm almost afraid to ask, but what happened to your snakes? Oh, they're all fine, the boy reported, and came back and got them. Took them to a safe place and let them go free. But first he had to peel the tape off their mouths, said Beatrice, chuckling. 
Stop! Roy was completely exasperated. Hold on right there. Mullet Fingers and Beatrice looked at him matter-of-factly. Roy's head was spinning with questions. These kids must be from another world. Would one of you please tell me, he begged, what this all has to do with pancakes? Maybe I'm dense, but I really don't get it. Grimacing, the boy rubbed his bloated arm. It's simple, man, he said to Roy. They can't put a Mother Paula's here for the same reason they can't have big old nasty Rottweilers running loose. Show him why, Beatrice said to her stepbrother. Okay, give me the hamburger. Roy handed over the package. Mullet fingers peeled off the plastic wrapper and scooped out a handful of ground beef, which carefully rolled into six perfect little meatballs. Follow me, he said, but try and be quiet. The boy led Roy to a hole in the grassy patch of ground. At the entrance of the hole, Mullet fingers placed two hamburger balls. Next, he walked to an identical-looking hole on the other side of the lot and left two more meatballs there. He followed the same ritual at another hole in the far corner of the property. Peeking into one of the dark tunnels, Roy asked, What's down there? In Montana, the only animals that dug holes like that were gophers and badgers, and Roy was positive there weren't many of those in Florida. Shh, the boy said. Roy trailed him back to the bulldozer where Beatrice remained perched on the blade, cleaning her eyeglasses. Well, she said to Roy. Well, what? Mullet fingers tapped him on the arm. Listen. Roy heard short, high pitch. Cuckoo. Then from across the open lot came another. Beatrice's stepbrother rose stealthily, tugged off his new sneakers, and crept forward. Roy followed closely. The boy was grinning through, the, through his fever when he signaled for them to stop. Look, he pointed toward the first burrow. Wow, Roy said under his breath. There, standing by the hole and peering curiously at one of the meatballs, was the smallest owl that he had ever seen. Mullet fingers clucked him gently on the shoulder. Okay, now do you get it? Yeah, said Roy. I get it.